Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to the Scripture. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we have it in our language, in the language of the tongue that is that we understand and that is our heart language. We are blessed to have that. Thank You for the truth that is there. And this morning as we come to some challenging stuff, Lord, I pray that that it wouldn't be just words that we hear and stuff that we we go out and it makes no difference, but rather that uh, that the word would accomplish what you have intended, and that as we read your word and as we work through it, that you would touch our heart and touch our lives, draw us near to you, make us more like Jesus, and send us out as your witnesses. So help us to understand Your Word now in these moments. Give grace to the speaker that I might speak Your words and clearly. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus gave us a mission to be His witnesses. We saw in Acts chapter 2 that we saw the power for the mission. Acts chapter 3 we saw the week before the message of the mission. We have marveled at the exciting early days of the church as it moved from just a small band of 120 believers in Acts chapter 1 and then within a span of of a few weeks by Acts chapter 4, this new church is some 15,000 or more followers of Jesus Christ. Last week in Acts chapter 4, we saw the church as it met its first impediment, the first potential roadblock that threatened to undo the mission of the church to take the the message out to those who have not heard. We, We saw as the authorities in Jerusalem sought to intimidate and to shut down this young church by persecution, by threats, hopefully to get them to abandon the mission But the church instead responded, as we saw last week, with united prayer. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Persecution didn't stop these believers. They didn't retreat into hiding. They didn't fall into silence. Rather, they were empowered by the Spirit and they kept boldly preaching the good news of Jesus. The rest of chapter 4 describes a little bit about life in this early church. It paints for us a beautiful picture of the church. I couldn't paint the picture of the body of Christ, so I just put up a little picture of a beautiful church. The church that is painted for us is Really nice. Listen as I read the end of chapter 4. I'll pick it up in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The picture we see here of this early church 
As I said, it's beautiful. We see that they are a church that is united. It says that they are of one heart and one soul. We see it's a church that is selfless and that is generous. The folks have the understanding that all that we have is not our own. You know, we, we've got bank accounts, we've got houses, we've got cars, we've got stuff, but we really don't own it. The Bible says that what we have is, is really all belongs to God. He has lent it to us. He has given it to us as a stewardship, as we are caretakers, stewards of what God owns. And this church understood that. And so they, they said that, well, my stuff doesn't belong to me. And so each one regarded their stuff as not their own. It is God's in my care. And so they freely gave as God led and as needs arose. Verse 33, we see that this church is a, has a powerful witness because as we saw in verse 31 that I read a minute ago that they, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, we find that this church is a blessed church. They, they have great grace from God, it says. They were abundantly blessed. There, was, there were no unmet needs. Not one needy person among this 15,000 or more people, not one person had unmet needs. This church was united. And while they ate together often, while they shared things in common, it's not like they just decided to go live in a commune like hippies in the 1970s. wasn't that at all. We noted a couple of weeks ago that the sharing here that's, that was taking place in the church was essential because if you'll recall, as the book of Acts opens, as Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, that, that it was days before Pentecost. Pentecost, one of the great feasts of all Israel, one of the pilgrim feasts where people from Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast of Pentecost. There could be, according to the ancient historian Josephus, there could be up to a million Jews in Jerusalem at that time, which the city itself normally had a population just over a hundred thousand. And so the place was crawling with people and the, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter delivers a marvelous and powerful sermons and, and thousands of people, 5,000 on that first day of Pentecost become believers in Jesus Christ. And the church grows hugely, 3,000 the first day. And this church grows and grows till now there's all these folks... Thousands of these folks are likely believers. They're foreigners. They have come from, from other countries, other nations. They're Jews who have come to Jerusalem. If you can imagine, if you would, that you and your family go to that great mecca of places to go visit, uh, say Fort Smith, Arkansas. And you travel down, you take your family, you go down to spend a few days in Fort Smith, Arkansas. But after a few days there, you, things change, things come up, and, and you have to extend your stay. And you stay there a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months. Can you just imagine? You, all your, you, you came for just a few days. <laughs> you have gone through all the, the stuff that you brought, the supplies that you brought. You've used up all your money. You don't have credit cards. 
There's no, you don't have access to banks, you don't have cell phones, and because it's Arkansas, you, you don't have all those, those, you know, conveniences, and, and so you have no access to all your resources back here. What do you do? How do you survive? That was the situation for thousands of these believers in Jerusalem in this early church. The only way was for those who had things to help and take care of those who did not have. What was going on here was not communism. You note that people still owned private property. We see that in verse 34. We note that all the giving was purely voluntary. There was no coercion. But those who had simply rose to the occasion when there was need and they would give of what they had. Perhaps at times selling land and houses, as it says, in order to provide for others. And then the text goes on and Luke gives us an example. He says in verse 36 that thus Joseph, who was also called by the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, who was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph was a Levite. He was of the priestly tribe of Levi, but he he was a native of Cyprus. His family was living in Cyprus. It says that he sold a field, literally a farm, brought the, the money and he lays it down to be used however. It says he's got a nickname. His nickname is Barney, which in Jewish, it's a Jewish way of saying, Luke translates it here, son of encouragement. It's a Jewish way of saying when somebody, they would say someone is a son of something, it means that they are the embodiment of that. There's a characteristic that so describes them that that's, that really is what you think of when you think of that person. So Barney, Barnabas was an encourager. Luke uses him here because he's an example of what was going on. He just gives us this specific example. He's also introducing Barnabas because he'll show up later in the stories. He's kind of a significant guy. And I wonder, would you like to be a part of this church? Would you like to be there and be involved in this? A a unified church. Everybody is of one heart, one mind. They are loving. They are selfless. They're devoted to one another. They're devoted to, as we saw earlier, they've been devoted to Bible study, to the apostles' teaching. They are a bold church. They are a, a powerful church. They're humble. They're generous. I think, wow, what a place. It reminds me of the chapel. It's a little little better, but we're pretty close. Would you like to be a part of that? Just chapter 5, verse 1. First word in most of your Bibles is the word, but. Have you noticed that most times in life when things are just really awesome that very quickly there comes along a but. Just a reminder, if you're if you plan to go looking for the perfect church, well, it's not there. It wasn't here either. And if you do find the perfect church, it won't be, as they often say, it won't be perfect once you get there. <laughs> All that we have seen so far, as Luke describes of this wonderful place, sets up a contrast 
for what is about to come. This church is about to encounter a second danger. We saw last week and earlier in chapter 4 the danger of persecution that threatened to undo the mission. Today we see the second of three dangers that the church faces. Next week we'll see the next one. This second danger, another impediment to the mission, something which threatens to derail and to undermine the mission of the church. The first attack was came from the outside. This one comes from the inside. It's much more subtle and it's much more dangerous. So what we're finding is it's a beautiful church, except it's got a big problem. But, chapter 5, verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear fell upon all who heard of it. No kidding. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And if you've heard these words for the first time, you just read this for the first time, you probably are going, what? What in the world is happening here? A guy goes to church, writes out a big check, puts a big offering down there, and gets struck dead. And a little bit later, his wife comes in, and she as well falls down dead. And I wonder, do you still want to go to this church? Do you still want to be a part of this? It's not exactly seeker friendly. <laughs> you wonder what's what's happening. Peter explains their crime. The problem wasn't that they didn't give everything. It wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give everything they had. Or that they didn't even give all of this property. It wasn't that they didn't give enough. Oh, I see your offering's lacking a little bit today. <laughs> that wasn't it. There was no requirement to give anything. Peter says the problem isn't the amounts you gave. The problem is 
that you lied to God about what you were doing. Luke has tied this story to what has preceded it with with that little word but connects it to what happened before. And so the connection there is that Ananias and Sapphira are bringing this gift because of what has happened before. They have been watching these these believers who were, were bringing big gifts. They saw people like Barnabas who went out and sold property, sold a house, and they came and laid down a big, a big gift. And they perhaps watched the folks who responded to that, and folks going, wow, that was really cool. Barney is such an awesome guy. He is so generous with his stuff. And Ananias and Sapphira see that and they go, huh. We'd like for people to think of us like people think about Barney. They'd call him, you know, son of encouragement. I wonder what they'll call us. You know, we've got some property we could give. And somewhere along the line, they make a decision and they make a declaration. We're going to sell, you know, this stuff and we're going to give it to the Lord. And they do. They sell the property and then something happens. Maybe it's sold for more than, you know, the property like here is going up faster than you, you think. And you, you think we'll list the house and we list it and all of a sudden we get more money than we ever thought we'd get for it. And they, they're surprised. They go, wow, that's a lot of money. We were planning to give this much. We thought it was worth this, but it's worth this. We could really use that extra cash, you know. Retirement's out there and and uh, this was going to be our retirement. We could really use that extra stuff. Or maybe the visa bill came in. It was higher than they thought. You know, we need some cash. And, you know, maybe that's just an awful lot of money to give. We can keep a little back. And who's going to know? Nobody will ever know. And all, after all, it's still a huge gift. And we'll just keep a little. No one will know except God. Brothers and sisters, remember, nothing is ever hidden from God. But that really didn't seem to concern them because what they were really concerned with was not what God thought. What they were concerned with is what people are going to think. And what they want is everybody to think that they are generous, spiritual, kind. So they hold some of it back. That word translated, kept back, can best be translated to steal. Matter of fact, the only other time it's used in the New Testament, it's translated to steal. They're stealing from what they promised God. Peter knows the truth because God revealed it to him. He confronts Ananias. Ananias never, never even gets the opportunity to respond. He doesn't need to because God already knows everything there is to know. And it's God who strikes him dead at that moment. Peter just says, hey, this is what's going to happen. Boom. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Guys, if you think your wife takes a while to get ready. He goes to church. He's saying, you know, Sapphira, I'm, you know, the car's, you know, I'm running out of gas in the, in the chariot here. It's time. I'm, I'm going to church. You know, see you later. And three hours later, she comes. You guys know, got nothing on Sapphira. She probably really looked good, though. 
And three hours later, she shows up to church. And I just think, you know, you think our services go long. <laughs> but three hours later, church is still happening. So you didn't even laugh at that one. You just go, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Ours really are long. She comes in unwittingly. She reveals that she has been in collusion with her husband to perpetrate this lie. And she dies. How they have said we love Jesus. They say we give everything to Him. But in truth, they love their stuff more than Jesus. They love their reputation. They love themselves more than Christ. They love the praise of people more than Jesus. And so they're satisfied with a religious show rather than love for Christ. But we wonder, why does God act so swiftly and so drastically? Because it just seems so bizarre, perhaps. First time you see this, you think, what? Why does God do this? Very quickly, a few things. First, because Jesus wants a pure church. Jesus wants a church that is good, not just a church that looks good. You and I don't stop sinning trying to earn heaven. We don't try to be good to get to heaven. We know that the only way we get to heaven is by trusting in Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, not by works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. But as those who have received the gracious gift of forgiveness of sin, as those who are headed for heaven because of the grace of God, believers want to live holy. We want to live for Jesus Christ. And it's what God wants us to do. It's what Jesus calls us to do. Just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. It's not about being perfect because none of us are going to be perfect until we get to heaven. It's about not being phony. Clinging to sin while at the same time we pretend to be all spiritual and holy. Have you noticed as you've read through the Gospels that Jesus has tender compassion on great sinners but He has scathing words for those who are self-righteous. They are hypocrites. They look so spiritual on the outside while in reality they love sin and they love themselves. They don't have a heart for God. Jesus takes the holiness of His church seriously and Scripture indicates that, that God still sometimes judges sin in the church with death. Speaking about some Christians who profane communion by pretending to be very religious and while they pretend to fellowship and walk with God while they live in sin, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, that's why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. Likewise, the Apostle John wrote in John 5, 1 John 5.16, he says, there is a sin that leads to death. Jesus takes the purity of His church seriously. 
Secondly, God acts swiftly and drastically here because this is the work of Satan. You'll, re- you'll notice there in verse 3 that Luke, as he records here, that Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Ananias has given himself over, as it were, in this lie to Satan. Hypocrisy is the little worm of sin that Satan is looking to implant in the church to corrupt the church, which left unchecked will go and and corrupt the church at the core. It will extinguish the this young church's fire for God. And Ananias and Sapphira are unwittingly being used as Satan's tools to damage the church. May I say such it is for you and me, brothers and sisters, when we give ourselves over to sin, hypocrisy, gossip, anger, lust, envy, jealousy, malice, that you and I ultimately become tools of Satan. He loves to take those little sins and use them to destroy the church. Thirdly, God acts swiftly and drastically because hypocrisy is a deadly sin. It destroys and kills our relationship with God. He replaces love for God for love for sin. He replaces love for God with love of ourself. And yet it disguises it, it hides it in the middle of ritual, in the middle of religion. Ananias and Sapphira die physically, but their physical death is really the, simply the outward manifestation of what the hypocrisy and the hidden sin already has done spiritually on the inside. Apostle James writes that sin, when it's finished, brings about death. I think God struck him dead as an illustration of exactly what sin does to us spiritually. It, it kills our fellowship with God. It quenches the Spirit in our life. We simply cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit if we are embracing sin. We cannot do both at the same time. Hypocrisy also damages the church. It's a little sin, but it has a big impact. We go back and think about that beautiful picture that is painted at the end of chapter 4 of the church. And if we just think about the things that, that characterize that church that made it so wonderful, what does hypocrisy do to those things? The church was of one heart, of one mind. It was united. But hypocrisy destroys the unity of the church. You say, how is that? Well, You see, it attacks the trust. It attacks the openness and the transparency that is needed in the church. When you and I lie, when we deceive one another, when we put up the little mask that say, I'm so spiritual, while we're just covering up and hiding a bunch of sin, when we're hypocritical like that, we make it impossible to have deep and close relationships. For a foundation of relationship is trust. So hypocrisy destroys the unity of the church. Hypocrisy destroys the love of in the church. Selflessness, being unselfish, is what love is. Love is putting the needs of others, the concerns of others, ahead of my own. 
The opposite of love is not really hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. And hypocrisy is at its core selfish. Hypocrisy is more concerned about what I want than what you need. Hypocrisy is more concerned about my own pride, my own... uh, It's about what I want and it's about what I want you to think of me. It's selfish. So that, that destroys, it's a little worm that destroys the love that was in this early church. Hypocrisy, not only that, that early church was, was not only united and they were loving, they were powerful in their witness and hypocrisy destroys the power of the church. You know the story back in Joshua chapter 7 as Joshua is leading the people of Israel into the promised land and there's the city of Jericho that they are supposed to take and God says, when you go into Jericho and when I give the city to you, when I deliver it to you, you are not to take a thing out of that city. You are to destroy everything. One guy, a guy named Achan, he's going through and as they, as they take the city, he looks down and he sees this Brooks Brothers suit. He says, it's my size. He looks down and he sees some silver and some gold and he thinks, he'd be ashamed to destroy all this stuff. Who's ever going to know? It's just a little stuff. And he grabs it and he puts it under his, his cloak and he gets back to his tent and he buries it under the floor of his tent. And nobody knows except God. And the Israelites go to the next battle, the city of Ai, and they, it was a smaller place and they are utterly defeated and they, scores of Israelites lose their lives and they come back and go, what happened? And God said, there's sin in the camp. That story is tied to this one. You say, how so? Well, it's Luke who does it. It's all about linguistics. Luke goes back and he takes the the Old Testament story, which was written in Hebrew but translated into Greek, and he takes the word for when when Achan is confronted with his sin, he says this, I coveted and I took them. And that little word took, when it was translated into Greek, it used the word that now Luke takes and he applies when Ananias kept back. He took. He stole. Luke counts on us knowing our Scriptures and he counts on us putting the two stories together. Because there's a common message between the two and it is this, that the sin of the one hurts the whole body. The sin of Achan affected the whole body of the whole family, the whole nation of the Israelites. And the sin of the one, the hypocrisy of the one of Ananias and Sapphira affected would affect the whole and corrupt the whole Body of the church. Hypocrisy is a cancer that can neutralize a church. It can make us like the church of Sardis, one of those seven churches in Revelation, where Jesus says to them, He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Hypocrisy in a church can can look like this wonderful place. They have a beautiful building. You have wonderful pews. You have great great programs, you have great music, you have all kinds of great stuff. But it's all a facade, it's all a sham. Behind there, there is not a relationship with God. There is not power. Hypocrisy can destroy the power of a church. Lastly, hypocrisy, that early church was known because they had an effective witness, effective testimony. But hypocrisy can destroy that. 
Have you ever heard somebody say the church is full of hypocrites? I have many times. One of them was a man that I grew up across the street from, lived across the street from my mom and dad. His name was Huddy. Huddy, apparently when he was younger, a man that he looked up to as a believer, the man turned out to be a hypocrite. And Huddy just said, that's it. He never went back to church. He walked away from... He never followed the Lord. I remember talking to Huddy many times. Me, a long-haired teenager, him, an older fella. We used to talk. He was a nice man, but he wanted nothing to do with Christ. He was wrong, of course. He was wrong because he, he let a hypocrite get in between him and Christ. He had his eyes on a fallible man rather than having his eyes on the Savior. But brothers and sisters, our mission, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Our mission is to, to bring people and point people to Jesus, not to make people want to run away from Him. But that's what hypocrisy does. When we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but we don't live like it, people look at us and say, if that's what being a Christian is, I want no part of being a phony like that. And they walk away. That's what hypocrisy does. Jesus judges Ananias and Sapphira very quickly, I want to just note what happens. What's the response to it? 11, verse 11 and says this, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Several things happen as a result of this incident. First, there is fear in the church. <laughs> and there would be, man, if, if, you know, if we, we had service here today, and uh, I gave a message, then we had the offering. During the offering, one of the deacons keels over dead. His wife comes in a little bit later at the end of the second message. <laughs> she comes in, keels over dead. Would there be fear in this place? You better believe it. Especially up here. This guy would be quaking. But you know what it did? It caused these people to say, this is serious. I'm not going to be phony. I'm going to be genuine. I'm going to live for Christ. There was fear in the church which caused them to live as people of purity. Lots of things happened. We see that the church continued now as they were before. They were ministering and they were, they were witnessing with power. We see as before that this church is together in unity. It says that they were, they were all together in Solomon's portico as they were before, meeting day by day, gathering together to worship and to break bread and to listen to to teaching of the Word and to pray together. They were united. We also see that it says that none of the rest dared join them. What that really means translated is that the pretenders stay away. Man, anybody who's just going along for the show, anybody who's just thinking, ah, that was fun, I wonder what's going to happen today. 
They're going, people die there. But notice this. It says that the people held them in high esteem. That means is unbelievers didn't look at that church and say, bunch of hypocrites. Unbelievers said, you know, I don't know what's going on over there and I don't know that I agree with it, but you know, those folks are serious. Those folks really love Jesus. Those folks are loving people. Those folks, you know, they had everything they said, they held them in high esteem. And lastly, and this is really surprising perhaps in view of all of the things that have happened, but it says that more than ever, Believers were being added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. More than ever, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This story is disturbing. It probably makes you uncomfortable because it does me. I struggled a lot this week trying to put this sermon together. Because at first you wrestle with this, why Why did God do this? Why does He act so harshly? Then it begins to dawn on us that, wait a minute. (sighs) I've done the same things. Who of us here this morning has never, ever put on a little show? (laughs) Never given the impression that we pray more than we really do. Never made it seem like we give more than we really give, that we witness more than we witness, that we read the Bible more than we do. Little lies, little statements, little exaggerations, little insinuations that inflate us to look better than we are and hide our flaws. Little hypocrisies. And if there's one of you out there who has never done that, you need to come take my place. And I'm serious with that. We've all been there. Maybe you're sitting there this morning. And you've got the mask up, man. You're there in your Sunday best and your heart and your life is so far from Jesus. And we wonder, the question is, why hasn't God judged me like He did Ananias and Sapphira? The only answer I can give is what Ezra said. said, yet God, You have punished us less than our sins deserved. So what do we do with that? Well, okay, God's punished me less than I deserve. I'm just going to go out and keep going. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness and His tolerance and His grace, not realizing that God's kindness is designed to lead you to repentance? The purpose of God's kindness and grace is to lead us to repentance. Our sin matters. It matters to God. It offends Him. It hurts us. It hurts others. It hurts the church. I can't help but think that much of the powerlessness of the church today is due to the hypocrisies in our lives. In my life. 
So I think the point of this incident, the reason that God put this right here in the beginning days of the church is because this is one of the greatest dangers to the church. It is one of the greatest impediments to the mission. It's when you and I allow ourselves to live in hypocrisy. Rather than being honest. Man, I struggle. Lord, I need help and I need Your help. Brother and sister, let's pray for one another. Let's encourage each other. Let's examine our hearts this morning. Maybe there's stuff you need to repent of. Clean out the hypocrisy. Live a life holy for Jesus. Father, we needed this. It's not something we like to look at. We don't like to look at the story. And we certainly don't like to look that deep into our life and to examine ourselves. The Lord, You've put this here for a reason. It's that we might see the great danger that sin is to us It's a killer. It robs us spiritually. It's an offense to you. And it destroys and damages the church. Lord, purify our hearts. We might not be hypocrites. We know we have a propensity to that. We have a tendency to that. So Lord, we confess that and we ask Your grace Purify us. Make us more like Jesus. It's in His grace and His name we ask it. Amen.